All right. This is the week that should be a Christian holiday, or at least a bigger deal in Christian circles, and it just isn't. You ever notice that? It should be, but it isn't, mainly because I think we're all too excited to get to Christmas. I don't know why. Nobody ever likes how cold and snowy it is, and yet we're all in a big hurry to get it cold and snowy and then complain about how cold and snowy it is. (laughs) There you go. Give me the stuff. Give me the stuff. That's all right. I'm going to sit on my couch and watch news reports on Friday to see how many people got trampled at Walmart and Best Buy. So, Because you laugh every year. The two, the two places are Walmart and Best Buy. I guarantee you there are people in tents right now out front of Best Buy. Which way? That way. You've got to think about which way I'm facing. Yeah, it's that way. I guarantee you there are people sitting out there camped out right now waiting to get some TV or the next iPhone or whatever it is that's going to be on sale. It's not worth it. But anyway. All right, so <laughs> I got that one. This brick still works. We're using it. All right, Psalm 46. All right, some background information that we are going to need to make sense of it. Not because it's infinitely vital and we can't make sense of it without it, just because it's very helpful. When it comes to the Psalms of your Bible, for some odd reason they didn't do this, and I don't know why, but those, um, those little titles above the Psalms, that we didn't number for the text are actually part of the text of the psalm. Does that make any sense? Okay. So, so if you flip to the book, if you flip to your New Testament, book of Matthew, that is not part of the book of Matthew, okay? Matthew actually begins with chapter 1, verse 1, where it says the gospel according to Matthew is not a part of the gospel. That's something the translators of your Bible put in there. Does that make sense? When you read the book of Psalms, where it says, For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, a song. That is actually part of Psalm 46. That's not something that the NASB or the King James or the NIV translators put in there for you. That is actually part of the psalm. It should technically be verse 1. Now, does that make sense? Okay. Now, this matters in this one because... I just read off a bunch of stuff and you all just kind of went, huh? All right, for starters, it's a song. This is supposed to be sung. I'm not going to sing it. The main reason is I have a perfectly good excuse. It's an Alamoth. An Alamoth is a high vocal range. So in other words, think Sopranos. Is Cameron still in here or does she run to the kitchen? So you could sing it. You're allowed. Ooh, I should have made you practice. That would have been, been worthwhile to see if you could croak this out. <laughs> Depends on how warmed up she is, depends on how high the notes get. So Cameron could sing it. If you sing in a higher vocal register, you could sing it. I cannot. So you're on your own. But it is a psalm of the sons of Korah. All right, Bible trivia time. This one wasn't in your bulletin, so you get no bonus points for this one. All right, who knows, who knows from their Old Testament who Korah is? Don't say, it, don't say who he is, but if you know, you can raise your hand. Does anybody know who Korah is? Ah, all right. Numbers chapter 16. There's a rebellion in Israel, in the wilderness. Who's the leader of the rebellion? Who thinks they know? Korah is the leader of the rebellion. He will come. There you go. Vern's following along. He's complaining. Why do you think you're in charge? God has not spoken to you any more than he's spoken to anybody else. The people are holy. The tabernacle is holy. The vessels are holy. We're all equal before God. Who do you think you are? Is the basic gist of Korah's complaint. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. 
They and all that belonged to them went down alive to the grave, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So in other words, you argued against Moses. God had chosen and appointed Moses, so to argue with Moses was to argue with who? That doesn't work well. Don't pick a fight with God and other dumb things we shouldn't have to say out loud. I need to write that book. <laughs> you know, like those little coffee table tidbits, you know, have a picture of the earth swallowing people whole with a little motivational caption. Don't argue with God. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry. They said, the earth may swallow us up. And fire came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. So in other words, this, this uh, false worship and rebellion that Korah has led has led to his and everybody else's death. Him and his household. Did you catch that part? Everybody's standing around his place. When the earth opens up, if the earth doesn't just open up and swallow Korah, it swallows up everything. Fun little note, though, Numbers chapter 26. The sons of Eliab, Nemuel and Dathan and Abiram, these are the Dathan and Abiram who were called by the congregation who contended against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men so that they became a warning. The sons of Korah, however, did not die. I've told you this before. Don't think of God's judgment as your dad trying to smack somebody in the backseat. You know, cars doing this all over the highway. That's not the judgment of God. It is precise. It is measured, and it is always right and deserved. God can judge Korah in his rebellion and the household members that participate in it while sparing the sons who have not participated. Now, you actually know in your Bible a descendant of Korah. I mean, you don't know him personally, but it's a rather famous individual. If you read in 1 Chronicles 6, who is the, um, who's the last judge of Israel? Samuel. Descendant of Eliab, of the sons of Korah. Samuel is a descendant of Korah. The sons of Korah who are not destroyed produce the priestly line that produces Samuel, the godly line that produces Israel's great prophet at the end of the time of the judges, the one who ushers in the kingdom. This is the work of God through that family line that is famous in Israel because of its rebellion and judgment. Those descendants give you this psalm, which means our Thanksgiving text today is a text of redemption because it comes from the Bible, and most of the texts of the Bible are a text of redemption. So as we dive into that, remember that history, because it's going to become important to see the different elements as we go through this. So, sound like fun? All right, let's dive in. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Yes, he is. There's another one of those things we shouldn't have to say out loud, but we should be reminded of on a regular basis. Do you think Israel knew this? They should, Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. All right. Exodus 15 comes after what? Exodus 14. Who knows what happens in Exodus 14? Anybody? Exodus 14 is the parting of the Red Sea and Israel walking through on dry ground. Now, that's the part of the story everybody remembers, but what's the last half of that story? Israel gets to the other side, they turn around, and Pharaoh does what? Hey, if they can do that, so can we. 
So they, will, they ride their chariots, and what was amazing is Israel goes through and the ground is dry. Pharaoh goes through and the chariots get stuck in the mud. Hmm. Just amazing how that works, isn't it? Just, just one of those things. Yeah, exactly. And Moses puts over his arm in the waters. Now, you want to understand that God is a refuge and a strength and a present help in trouble. When you're backed up against the sea and the armies of Egypt are bearing down on you, how much hope do you have of escape? None. Unless God says, no, you're not dying today. In which case, how much hope does the Egyptians have of killing you? That same none. So, I've told you this before. You want to understand your prophets. You want to understand your praise and wisdom literature. Understand God's redeeming work. God's redeeming work is shown most clearly to Israel in what? Exodus. The events therein. It helps you see the connections and understand the pictures. Now, Christian, should we understand this as well? Yes. Yes, we should. John 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Lots of words to say what? If you're God's, he will redeem you. If you're God's, he will rescue you. If you're God's, you cannot, will not, and are not to be lost, because you would have to be pried out of his hand. That's supposed to be a comfort because he is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our help in our troubles. Mentioned this last week when we were reading, um, it's 1 Corinthians 10. I think it's 1 Corinthians 10. Read Corinthians, it will do you good. So the reminder that the events of Exodus are written for whose benefit? Theirs or ours? Ours. So that we would learn from their mistakes and be reminded. What's the ending of that? No temptation has overtaken you that is uncommon but with every temptation is a way of escape. What's always the way of escape, Christian? Be faithful. But what if they're going to kill me? There's the difference. The way of escape is trusting in God. See, here's the thing. If they're going to kill me, and I forsake God, what are they probably going to do anyway? <laughs> I'm still going to end up dead, amazingly enough. At some point, if they don't do it, it's going to happen when? Some point down the line... Who survives life? No one survives life. Always remember that lesson. We don't like to talk about that, but no one survives life. So either they kill me or something else kills me. Either way, I end up dead. If I have forsaken and turned away from God, what have I gained? Nothing. But if they kill me and I've remained faithful, what have I gained? The way of escape is is faithfulness. The way of escape is trusting in God. The way of escape is staying on the narrow road to his kingdom. This is, the, this is why the temptations and the trials come. I mean, if nothing tried to knock you off the road, where would you be? Uh, you, you, <laughs> Vern, Vern's the honest one. Off the road in a ditch somewhere, right? doing donuts in the field because it looked like fun. I have no idea where the road even went anymore. Eh. <laughs> It might have been. It was so tricky, I even confused myself. No. 
This matters, though, because if you're on the road and nothing keeps you off the road, why are you on the road? No, no, no. If, if nothing ever is wrong, the road is perfectly straight, there's nothing to hit, you don't even have to worry about making those little corrections you have to do in the car. Why are you on the road? Because I put me here, and because I've kept me here. I'm an awesome driver, right? Now, when that nice breeze comes along, and now we're over there, and I need help to get back in the road, why am I on the road? Because someone put me there. I had to do this years ago. I was driving a 15-passenger van full of senior citizens to a funeral. You want to talk about a fun afternoon? I was driving down I-95, um, going south, and for whatever reason that day, there was about a 30-mile-an-hour west-east breeze. And as you're driving down I-95 in North Carolina, there's trees everywhere until you get to a field where there's suddenly no trees. And I'm just driving along this 15-passenger van, and in the trees, there's no wind, so I'm just cruising along. Guess what happens every time I hit a field? I don't even do anything, and all of a sudden, I've changed lanes. Not a thing I can do about it. And I just know these seniors in the back of the van are like, this person can't drive. How did they let? This is what happens when we let the youth guy take us some places. <laughs> Open the windows. <laughs> let it blow through. But it was miserable. But that's Christian walk right there. The minute you think everything's fine, what's going to happen? And it's a constant reminder that you're on that road because God has placed you there, and you will stay on that road because God will keep you there. That your help, your strength, your security is not in you, not in your talents, but in God and God alone. So because he is our refuge and strength and very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. I don't want to live in that world, do you? I mean, mountains are falling into the sea. This is like that, that end in Ghostbusters. Mass chaos, earthquakes, fire, cats and dogs living together, the whole nine years. You knew I was going to say that, so it had to be done. Why don't we fear? Because that's the punchline. We will not fear, even though the earth should change. Mountains falling into the oceans, waters roaring and foaming, mountains quaking. All of this is going on, and we're just doing what? Cool. Why? One, has God changed? No. Malachi 3 told Israel, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. Hebrews gives you the same reminder that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is one of the reasons for thanksgiving. What he has promised will come to pass. Why? Because he has the power to deliver it, and the only way he would not deliver it is if something about God were now different than it was when the promise was made. But God's immutability, big fancy word of the day, his unchangingness is a security because that which he has promised, he will fulfill. That which he is building, he will complete because there is no power greater, there is no wisdom that is wiser, and there is no change in God. The plan doesn't move. This is why I always like pointing out that the salvation of the Old Testament is the same as the salvation of the New Testament because it's consistent not just in message, but it demonstrates a consistency in who? Messenger. And who is the inspiring author behind Scripture? The Holy Spirit. It is God. It is the same salvation because it is the same Savior. It is the same salvation because it is the same cure for the same problem that we have, that they had, that God is fixing. So, we don't fear because He hasn't changed. We also don't fear because... He's provided. He's strength. He's refuge. He's help. Luke 6. Everyone 
who comes to me and hears my words and acts acts on them. I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid a foundation on the rock. When the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Why do you think Jesus uses that language? It's the most destructive force that we have to deal with in this world. Water. Wind can do some damage. You ever seen what water does? Years ago, I was a chaplain for the North Carolina Baptist men. I got to go down to Baytown, Texas after Hurricane Ike. North Carolina Baptist men set up shop for four months in this church. I kid you not. They just moved in, hunkered down, and started working on houses and delivering meals and the whole nine yards. I'm still mad at the Red Cross to this day because they took credit for all the meals we made. (laughs) The Baptist men served between three and 5,000 meals a day, three times a day, for four weeks. And half of them were given to the Red Cross to deliver, and the Red Cross told people that those were the meals that they had made. (laughs) I'm like, you... (laughs) No, not in the least. To To this day, I'm not bitter at all. Yeah. I got to go into houses that had been flooded. I went into a woman's house where she, this nice little neighborhood, and she was uphill from this little creek because the, the river comes down from Houston, goes down, it snakes through Baytown, and then eventually dumps out into the Gulf. And she was in this neighborhood, and the creek was probably 20, 30 feet, you know, down the hill from her house. And what they do in flood repairs is they take out everything that is wet, and then they go up another six inches. So if you get a foot of water in your house, they rip out the drywall, everything, up to 18 inches because you had a foot of water. Because that way they can treat it for mold, and then they can do repair work. I walked in, and I could see all the way through the house. Because they had to tear out everything all the way up to the ceiling. They even tore out the drywall ceiling because it was all wet. And I'm looking at the water is down there, and now I'm standing. I'm like, nah. water destroys everything, and it stops for nothing. Christ's example is when you build upon my words, the water comes through to destroy your home, and it does nothing because it's well built. In other words, it's almost like it's a reminder that a life built upon Christ can't be shaken. A life built upon the principles of God cannot be lost. It's almost like they can't take anything away from a life built upon God. Same message from Christ is the same message being delivered here from the sons of Korah. Not only that, he hasn't changed. He's provided. He's accomplished. Revelation 7, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. If God places you someplace and says, you're safe here, what will harm you? If God places you somewhere and says, you're provided here, what will you lack? Why was Israel, after the crossing of the Red Sea, led three days into the wilderness and provided nothing? Because three days out into the desert, what are you expecting to find? Nothing. So when the manna show up, who sent it? When the quail show up, who sent them? When water is provided, who sent it? It's almost like they're being taught to not trust in themselves, not trust in their wisdom, not trust in their accomplishments, but to trust only in God. Christian. Welcome to the wind. Wee! Trust not in yourself. Trust in him. Now, by contrast, verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. Notice the contrast between the, the torrent that was coming before 
and the stream that God has now provided. Which one do you want to hang out by? Mountains falling into the ocean, foaming waters, you know, oceans being stirred up, or a nice stream. (laughs) I want to sit there. That's just, ah. Unless you've had children, in which case you probably sit there, listen to it for five seconds, and you have to go find a bathroom. (laughs) My wife is now nodding at me like, you had to mention that, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. Notice the contrast. We're moving here in the psalm. God protects. I've mentioned it, but now we're going to outright mention it in this psalm. What does he also do? He provides. This is why Paul could tell the Philippians what? The example used from earlier with our, with our trivia question. You give Paul nothing. Is he content? Yes, because he has God. You give Paul everything the world could offer. Is Paul content? Yes, because he has God. It's almost as if the stuff that you give him doesn't matter. It's almost as if his comfort doesn't matter. We've used this example before. If you're homeless and someone gives you a shack to stay in, is it a good shack? Then the snowstorm comes, and hey, there's no snow in this thing. Is that a good place? That's an awesome place. Why? Because I'm not outside in the snow. Now, if I take you from your house, and I give you a beat-up old shack, do you like it? Now, when the snow comes, are you happy? A little bit. You'd be like, well, it could be worse. It could be sitting out in the snow. But do you like your shack? Do you love your shack? Are you going to brag to your friends about your shack? See, what's the difference in the shack? Has it changed? No, it's the same beat-up old thing that's been there for 100 years. It does the same job for you. It does the same job for the person who had nothing. What's different? Your mindset. I had this, and I've lost it, and all you've given me is this shack. They had nothing, and you've given me a shack. See, the only thing that's changed is you. If you would like to learn the secret of contentment in your life, it's not learning to be okay with your stuff. It's learning to be okay with God. It's learning to realize that God has provided, that God's provision is good, and that the things that he has given are for your needs, not your wants. And that while while what you define as your needs may not always be met, you're still here. And if you're not here and you've walked faithfully, well, what have you gained? everything. The security that the world offers is non-existent. Completely and utterly non-existent. Well, that's the main reason. It's not there because it's all a lie. Give you the house. Give you the car. Give you the bank account. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world This is why if you rewind from Philippians 4, which is the verses everybody knows that we put on the coffee mugs, and go back to Philippians 3, Paul's answer was all of his accomplishments, all the things that he has gained, how does he view them? Their loss. Why? Because if I need to sacrifice all the things of this world to understand Christ, to work in his kingdom, to attain to his resurrection, then is that a fair trade? Yes. Yes, it is. This is, again, why Jesus can warn you. If your right eye causes you to sin, sorry, Denny. Because I know I used that one on Sunday school and you, you made mention. If your right hand causes you to sin, what's better? To, go, to have two hands and to go into hell or to have one hand and to go into eternity with God? Now, again, I did not tell you to cut your hands off, okay? Don't turn into origin on me. There's a whole church history story that I am not telling about what part of his body he cut off to avoid sin. I'll let you use your imagination. Because it was that one. Yeah, that's a, fun, that's a fun church history story. It's the only thing the man gave us... 
Yeah. It's the, he gave us the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. That's what origin is one of the things he's given us in church history. So he didn't take any of the, the, the words of the Bible literally except those. Wrap your brain around that. Sometimes when the brain breaks, it does very bizarre things. So I didn't tell you to cut your hands off, but it's a warning that this is the easy one. When we find sin, what do we do? <laughs> kill it, kill it how? With fire. Again, my joke, I didn't tell you this in the, in the worship service, so you'll, you'll just have to ask somebody from my Sunday school class. Yes. Say, my Sunday school class gets that one. It'll be all right. I'll fill you, ask me at lunch, and I'll be glad to tell you what that means. I know you do. You're, you're, you're part of the elect that got the story already. So, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. See, this matters. Not just because of what the work is, but because of who is doing the work. See, John 10 reminds you, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Read this last week. I want to read it again this week because it matters. Daniel 4, when Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses and realizes that he is not king of creation but that God is, Um, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, are Jesus and Nebuchadnezzar saying the same thing? Nebuchadnezzar, no one can ward off his hand, all the inhabitants of the what was that word? All the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing. No one can turn away his hand. And Jesus saying, no one is stronger than the Father. No one can snatch them out of his hand. Are they saying the same thing? Yes. Are they saying it the same way? No. Which one is a little bit more comforting? Jesus's or Nebuchadnezzar's? Jesus's. Why do you think that is? This is one of the things about Thanksgiving and why you should be thankful for life that we need to get right. Good old Nebby, because, you know, that's what happens. That, that was his name in the Chocolate Bunny. And Becca got that one as soon as I said it. Da Bunny, Da Bunny. Oh, we love Da Bunny. If you haven't seen VeggieTales, watch VeggieTales. It'll do you good on occasion. But Nebuchadnezzar does not understand what we talked about last week when we talked about transcendence and imminence, that God is big and awesome and beyond us, but God is also near and part of us. If you only have one or the other, you will fall into the ditch. Do you want to drive in the ditch? No, we want to drive where? In the middle. As we find yourself going from one side to the other, do like I did, get a cup of coffee, pull over, take a nap, and then start driving again because you realize the road's supposed to be in the middle of the lines, not on the edges of it. Nebuchadnezzar had a very good understanding of the transcendence of God, but he had not as of that point understood the imminence of God. Is God beyond you? Yes. Can God smush you like a bug? Yes. Does he do that simply because he can? No. Again, wrath is not just, you know, figuring something out. I always have to be careful. I'm a, one of these days I'm going to do this. You know what I'm going to do, right? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, no, I'm going to send the Bible flying across the room. I mean, you just know that's going to happen one of these days. And you're going to laugh, and I'm going to be annoyed, and it'll be all right. That's the understanding that he has because he doesn't understand that the God who can smush me hasn't. He hasn't. 
This is why Paul can tell you it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance, that there is a provision from God. He is in the midst of this stream in his city. It's not like God builds a city, sticks his people in there, all right, you got water, don't bother me, kid, leave me alone. God stands in the midst of it. This is what the tabernacle has been all about. God dwelling with who? His people. He doesn't just take them out of Egypt, send them out to the wilderness, and be like, all right, guys, there's, there's water on the third mountain on the left, and I'll make sure that the Ammonites leave you alone. Have a good day. Would you go out there? You know, this, is, this was Moses' complaint when God says, the people are too sinful. I cannot go up amongst them. I will not dwell amongst them. Moses says what? Then don't send us. If you're not going, we're not going. We're just not. Because we can't do this without you. Because you are the refuge. You are the strength. You are the help. You are the protection. You are the provision. You are all of these things. If you're not in, we shouldn't be either. This is what the sons of Korah are seeing in this psalm. That it's not just God giving a kingdom and then saying, all right, figure it out. It is God. The prize is that he is there. He is providing. He is protecting. The emphasis is not on provision and protection. It's on the he. That he is not forgotten. That he is not forsaken. That he is not walked aside. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. See, that's how I always envision what actually happened in Mark 4, when Jesus falls asleep in the boat and the storm is raging. And they finally wake Jesus up and he goes to the front of the boat and he tells the storm to be calm and be still. And since I've grown up in, well, I can't say I've grown up, I've grown up but I've been in way too many southern churches, it always, gets, it always gets read as God telling the storm to be still. And I just know he didn't say it like that. One, because he's not from Georgia. And two, because I want to know what it sounds like when the creator speaks and commands his creation. Because I know what it sounds like when I tell my kids to do something. (laughs) You get the right day. I want to know what it sounds like when God does that. Because I think it sounds probably more like this. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. In other words, is that a comfortable world? the nations are doing this, that, and the other, and and all the nations are are slipping and sliding, and God raises his voice, and the earth melts. Closest example I have to that is when I finally can't take it anymore, and I yell one time at the kids, and everybody else goes like that, including the dog. And it's like, okay, what are we doing, and why are we doing this? (laughs) I don't know. Same thing. By the way, this is already covered in Psalms, if you go back to Psalm 2. He who, sits, who, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Which I always love as a response because the reason God is laughing at them is because they are sitting there, the nations, shaking their fist at him and saying, we'll be in charge and shake off your fetters. In other words, you won't rule, we'll rule. And God's answer is, <laughs> that's cute. Look, look, it's cute. He will speak to them in his anger, terrify them in his fury and say, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion my holy mountain. They've been warned. Christian, this has also been delivered. Where in the Bible has this been delivered? See if anybody wants to give a guess. Who's feeling froggy? (laughs) One of my favorite little sections of apocalyptic literature, Revelation 19. Um, The verse everybody knows, 
King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus comes down, the, the sword from his mouth and the eyes of flaming fire, and the enemies are all assembled, and Jesus is on the horse with the sash. You know what I'm talking about in Revelation 19? Read Revelation 19, it'll do you good. And this, this is the great battle on the plain of Megiddo, where we get the word Armageddon from. And this is the great assembly of the forces of the serpent, evil against good and light and darkness and all that good stuff. We never read the end. The beast was seized with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from his mouth, who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's the most anticlimactic movie scene in human history. This is why nobody makes that movie. Because this is like assembling this great army and it covers the whole ground. And Jesus is like, okay, you lose, you die, get in the fire. All right, we're done here. It's like five minutes. Because it's finished. It's accomplished. This is why Jesus didn't say upon the cross, it will be finished. It is finished. They've lost. They may not recognize it, but they have lost. What we are doing in life is the equivalent of the victory formation of football. Do any non-football people have no idea what I just said? Victory formation is the end of the game when it's over, but football ends when? When does a football game end? When the clock runs out, right? So if we're up by 14 touchdowns and we have the ball and there's a minute left to go in the game, are, do we need to run another play? No, but we have to keep the clock moving and there's a penalty if we don't run a play, so we take a snap and do what? Just take a knee. Clock keeps moving, eventually the game runs out. That's victory formation. Christian, that's your world. You are living out victory formation. Jesus won. Death has been defeated. The grave has been conquered. He has risen, ascended to the right hand of the Father. All righteousness has been bestowed upon his children. You won. You won. Why, why, why does it always look like we lost? <laughs> I'm serious. Why, why do we negotiate with the side that's defeated? Why do, we, why do we argue about it? Why don't we stand there and say, thus says God. This is what he has commanded. Therefore, this is what we will do. This is what he has commanded. Therefore, this is how we shall live. Oh, yeah? Well, yeah, yeah. What do you mean, oh, yeah? What, go sit down. What are you going to do? What can you take from me if I have Christ? What? Again, this is my, my favorite church history quote. I'm gonna, I don't, there's not one that tops Latimer and Ridley during the reign of Bloody Mary. Two 70-year-old bishops rounded up to be burned at the stake, and one of them's afraid. And the other one says, play the man. This day we shall light such a candle that I trust will never be put out. Again, I have a twisted sense of humor some days. I don't think I could be walking to the place where they're going to burn me at the stake and say, we're going to light a candle, boys, let's go. <laughs> That's what it looks like to not be afraid of what the world can take. That's what it looks like to have striven for the kingdom and not this place. Second favorite story is Polycarp. 86-year-old man, they bring him into the Colosseum. We're going to turn loose the lions. We're going to turn loose the boiling oil. We're going to burn you at the stake. That's nice. Eighty and six years have I served him. He has done me no wrong. How could I turn away from him now? Which is the Christian version of, whatever, I'm too old for this. Let's get this over with. <laughs> Why? Because a life lived in service to God is a life lived in service to God. 
It is a life lived forsaking the world and not caring what the world can offer. Because if I don't care what you can give me, you know what else I don't care? What you think you can take. Because if you didn't give me anything, you can't take it away either. And my provision is in God. My refuge is in God. My strength is in God. And he has accomplished all these things. So, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Yes, Yes, he is. How do I know that, by the way? Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Hmm. What's one of the things I should be carrying around as part of my armor? What do you think? Who wants to throw one out? Yeah, that's a good weapon, right? That's the actual sword. Why? Why is that the weapon? Do you ever ask that question? Why is the Bible the weapon? Is it because it's heavy and leather-bound and I can hit people with it? I mean, there are days, that's why I said, I've told you, one of, my, one of my life sayings is, when in doubt, get a bigger Bible, right? That's why your grandmother had that hard-backed one, that, the family Bible where she wrote everybody's birthday and when they got married and when they died. That was because when your, when your parents got out of line, she <laughs> let that sink in. So somebody gave me one years ago. They found it in an old pawn shop. I kid you not, it was, I don't even know when it was printed. It looked older than it probably was. But it was about this thick, hardbacked Bible, about this big, it had a latch on it. And I kept threatening one of these days I was going to get it mounted on a stick so I could use it like as a weapon, but I never got around to it. <laughs> Connor would look at it and be like, I can't even pick it up. Well, come here, let me drop it on you. For you. Why is that the weapon though? Second Timothy 3, how much of scripture is God breathed? All scripture is God-breathed, therefore it is profitable. For what? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Every good work. Not some of them, not most of them, all of them. In other words, if I want to know how I walk in this world, what should I be reading? My Bible. Because it will teach me about who? See, always realize this. I point this out all the time. Scripture does not point to you. Scripture points to Christ. So as you read Scripture and study it rightly, you should be not learning about you. You should be learning about Jesus. But the more I learn about Jesus, the more I understand what's wrong with this world, what's wrong with me, because that's a laundry list, isn't it? And I understand what? What he has done about it. I understand. The jacket just melted. All of a sudden, it moved on its own. It's like, ah! I almost did it right there. You almost had me launching the podium across the room. There you go. You were this close. It teaches me about him. The more I learn about him, the less I care about me. See, there's the difference. There's what it looks like to take up your cross daily. There's what it, there's what it looks like to forsake yourself and to follow after him. Because I know who he is. Because here's the thing. When I follow after me, who am I following? Yeah, but what am I? Let's be honest. <laughs> Insert your own adjective. I tell you all the time to pray for my wife. Why? Because she's married to an idiot. So I've told you, you don't want to hear my ideas because my ideas are what? Terrible. That's why Cameron has to save you from them. Every time I have an idea, I say it to Cameron out loud and go, oh, that sounded better in my head than it was out loud. And then sometimes like, no, no, this is a good idea. And then I say it and I see the look. Okay, it's not a good idea. All right, abort mission. We're not doing that. Because I don't have good ideas. God has wisdom. I don't have right teaching. Scripture contains right teaching. 
That's why I've mentioned to you before, the worst Sundays that I have are special Sundays. Like when we do stuff at Christmas or like what we're doing for Thanksgiving because it gets us out of the regular flow of following through a book because I'm trying to figure out how to mess with something on a bit more of a theme. And even then, what do we do? We're going to talk about Thanksgiving by doing what? Going verse by verse through because anything less would be something that I came up with. Run screaming from the room when you start getting my ideas and don't come back until we start getting what's actually contained in scripture. And that goes for any other church you have ever been in or ever might attend. I mean, not that you would ever leave here, but you know, just on those off chances you're visiting family or something like that. Oh, I'm losing you guys. You're sleeping on me. (laughs) Scripture has wisdom. It has the things that we need. It has the message that explains who God is. It has the tools, the instructions, the conviction that is required for living in this world. That's why The who here is so important. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. By the way, your apostles got this. That's why they wrote it down. James 4, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Did you know it was that easy? Did you know it was that easy? Submit to God, resist the devil, he runs away. Do you have any idea how many ministries are built on how to deal with Satan? I mean, seriously, I get newsletters from these people because they send them here. I don't know why. They think we're going to give them money. They think I'm going to promote them. I'm, like, they're having some binding service. They're binding Satan for the 75th time this month. And I'm like, I don't care because you know what? I don't care what evil is doing if I'm walking in the light. I don't care what darkness is up to if I'm shining the light. Peter tells you the same thing. First Peter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may proper time. Oops, excuse me. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, Satan, big, bad, roaring lion, trying to devour you. And what's the answer? Be faithful. Resist him firm in the faith, and he'll do what? Leave you alone. Why? Because I'm trusting in God. I don't care. But the temptations might kill you. I don't care. If getting off the road that leads to God gets me off of a road that leads to a death, it's still getting off the road that leads to God. And I'm still going to die, so I don't understand what I've gained. I forfeited everything. Because I've believed the lie and longed for something in which world? This one. See the problem here? This is why understanding who he is and what he has accomplished matters so much. It changes your perspective. Your life hasn't changed a whole lot. But your perspective on that life has changed. If your comfort, if your security, if your anything that is what is propelling you in this world is something from this world, you are in trouble. You are in big, big trouble. And you have no reason to be thankful. But if your security is in God, if your hope is in Christ, and your strength comes from His empowering and His guiding, then you have every reason to be thankful because you have everything. So let's continue. Come, 
Behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. Does that sound like a reason to praise? (laughs) Come, behold the works of God who has destroyed everything. (laughs) Like, this is what my kids do. I'm not supposed to celebrate that. I don't walk in the room when the Legos are scattered across everywhere and go, oh, good job. No, get the bucket. You're cleaning this up. I mean, this is praise for one very important reason. It instructs on who God is and what he has done. Genesis 18.25. Abraham sitting there with God. God has told him he's going to go judge the works of Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy the cities of the plain. Abraham starts his negotiation with this. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And Abraham says that because the answer to that is obviously what? Will the just judge of all the earth deal rightly? Yes. Yes, he will. That's why Abraham goes through his whole negotiation. If there's 50 righteous, will you destroy the city? No. 40? No. 30? No. 20? No. 10? No. How many righteous were in Sodom and Gomorrah? Eh. Zero. None. Lot gets rescued on, on, uh, because of Abraham. Um, as a courtesy, I guess would be the right way to say it. Because of Abraham's relationship with God, Lot receives a benefit. Exodus 34. We made a big deal about God passing by Moses. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. We like that part, right? Always remember the other part of it. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. The Savior is also the judge. That's why this is a cause for praise. Come, behold the works of God who has wrought desolations on the earth. Why is that praise? Because his people are looking at it, which means his people are not where? There, which means who was there? If his people are here, then who's over there? Yeah, those, the not his people. Remember, I, I used to get in this argument um, that we, we would sit down in a meeting and, and I would be told in these meetings that they were not happy. And I couldn't help myself one day because I finally, I did, I asked. I couldn't take it anymore. There are people who are complaining, Ooh, I want names, phone numbers, and addresses. And somebody who was kind of on the same side as me said, well, it's they, it is them, those that are not us. <laughs> I've, never for, I've never forgotten that. Yes, it is they. They are over there. They are not us, because we are here and they are there, and that's all that matters. But if God's people are looking at the desolations, then the desolations are being wrought upon not his people, which means they are deserved, which means it is judgment, which means it is right, which means it is good, which means it is a cause for praise. This is one of those things we get messed up because we look at things from the wrong perspective. Well, I don't want anybody to get judgment, and I'm not telling you you should want people to get judgment. But do you want sin dealt with? Do you want it dealt with gently? Then we have to get a lot more comfortable with understanding that God is judge. Because the more comfortable we get with the understanding of God as judge, the more willing we will be to proclaim God as Savior. 
See, part of the reason we don't proclaim a message of salvation to people who need to hear it is because we don't really understand how bad judgment really is. And we don't think through it on a daily basis and understand what we have been rescued and redeemed from. Therefore, we try to minimize it and we try to forget about it. We try to think that that's all the way down the line. It's way in the future. Maybe. And maybe not. I mean, I was cruising along, going 80 miles an hour down the interstate at 2 o'clock in the morning with nobody else on the highway because it was just going down the hill, down the mountain on the other side of the mountains in West Virginia and Virginia and cruising along in the right-hand lane. And next thing I know, in the left-hand lane, there's a deer head right there. After I sucked all the air out of the car, because <laughs> he was big. I mean, I was in a minivan and his head was even with mine. So he was up. I mean, you know when I saw him? I saw him literally right there. What if he had taken three more steps? I'd have hit him 75, 80 miles an hour going down the mountain right before a curve. Whee! It didn't, and I'm thankful. But how much of life do we live where, well, next week, next month, we'll do this next year, what is James's warning? You don't know anything. You're a vapor. And the lights go out. We don't think like that. It's one of the reasons we're not more thankful. It's one of the reasons we're not more content. It's also one of the reasons why we get along with the world so well. It's because we don't process the fact that at any point, the lights can go out permanently. And judgment will be merciless upon sin. Because God's righteousness demands it. And yet, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, that's why it's a rejoicing, by the way. Because in order to be cleansed from all unrighteousness, is that all of mine? Is that all of my sin? If all unrighteousness is cleansed, is that all of my sin? Yes, yes it is. If God will cleanse from all unrighteousness, then his kingdom will be empty of all my sin. But guess who else's sin it'll be empty of? Everybody else's. That's why we'll rejoice, by the way. Because if I'm getting rid of my sin and I'm dwelling in God's holy kingdom, how much sin do I want gone? Yes. That's how you'll view it. That's how you'll see it. And it is right. That's why it's a song of praise. A reminder... Who does this come from again? No, no, no. Who does this psalm come from again? The sons of Korah. Who in Israel doesn't know who these people are? Who in Israel? I mean, look, you got to think, Middle Eastern culture is a little different from our world. You got to think of Middle Eastern culture much more like you think of Southern culture. When Cameron and I first started dating, do you know what the first question every human being in her family asked? Who's your family? Whose people is he? And that was not okay because you know how much of my people they knew? That was not okay. He can't be trusted. Why not? I don't know who his mom is. Now, I was, I'm going to toot my own horn a little bit, break my arm. I was better behaved and a lot nicer than a lot of the children of mamas and grandmamas that her family knew. You know who was trusted? They were. Because I know his mama. I know his grandma. I work with his daddy. I know all these things. Therefore, he's trustworthy because I know who he is. That's Middle Eastern culture, much more so than this, I deal with you as an individual. 
that matters. Excuse me. That matters because it puts you on the track in the world. Now, sons of Korah, you're descended from who? Everybody knows that. Everybody does. You're going to rejoice in judgment? Have you forgotten where you came from? No. No, we haven't. Which is why we rejoice in judgment. Because even when my people sin, I rejoice when God does what is good and right. Even when it's me. Even when it's mine. Because right is right, good is good, and we celebrate the works that God has brought, all of them. He makes the wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire, because that's what he does. John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Why? Because in God's world, who's making war against God? Who's making war against God? No one. Because if you did, what would happen? <laughs> Sword, mouth, fire, lake, whole night, you know, burning, the whole bit. Can you win? I mean, nobody sits down and goes, all right, two out of three. Let's see what, I, I think I got you this time, to God. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. His kingdom is secure. Why? Because he secures it. And what God has secured will not be taken. Therefore, it's not there, but it should be. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. See? Can God be trusted with your life? Can God be entrusted with your eternity? Yes. Can you? No. (laughs) Which is why Jesus tells you, what are you worried about? You're worried about clothes. You're worried about food. You're worried about everything. How many worries does tomorrow have? All of them. Tomorrow has all the worries. You're worried about everything that the world will give you. What should you be worried about? Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then everything will be added. All these things will be added. Why? Does that mean you're going to get everything you've ever wanted if you trust in God? No. And yes. It's a trick question. Stop right now. Everything that you're worried and everything that you want from the world, if you trust in God, will you get it? No. But if you trust in God, will you want it? No, you won't. But what will I want? I will want the things of God. I will want the right provision. I will want, I will want, English man, English. There we go. I will want the needs met and I will be content. Suddenly that shack is what? The snow is out there and i'm in here the stuff hasn't changed you've changed the holy spirit doesn't change what goes on outside he changes what goes on inside that's why seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then all these things will be added because i care about the clothes that i wear until i care more about god and then i look at the clothes that i wear and go awesome i'm not naked good team i care about the food that i'm gonna eat until i care more about god and then i look at the food and i eat and I go awesome i'm not starving perspective matters perspective is what's changed that's what this is cease striving where are you going nowhere good Know that I'm God. 
because now you're in the right place. He will be exalted. He will be extolled. Therefore, it will be good. Don't you want to live in a world that praises God? Yes. What will that, what will that require? Mm-hmm. It's not a good question. You know the answer. We just don't like the answer. It will require everyone to recognize that they're not in charge and that he is, which means it will require people to bow the knee or it will require God to break the knee. If he will be exalted, then sin will be dealt with. If he will be seen in all the earth, then his kingdom will be secure. Therefore, it will be peace. It will be a time of rejoicing. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. That's very good news. The first one more so than the second one. See, you know God is strong. You know God is powerful. That's old Nebi's transcendence, right? That he's big, he's mighty, he's powerful, there's nothing else. Christian, never forget the first part. Yahweh, Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts is with us. He didn't send you out into the wilderness to be like, have fun, you know, Miracle Max. Have fun storming the castle. If you didn't get that one, watch more good 80s movies. It'll do you very good. (laughs) He didn't do that. He stormed the castle. He burned it down. And then he built his own and said, hey, come in. We're good here. Genesis 7. We'll finish here. In the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month on the 17th day of the month on the same day, by the way, just so you know that the things in your Bible are not just be like, hey, you know, let's just put something here. Once upon a time in a land far, far away. On the second month, on the 17th day of the month, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Of all the things I would like to see what it looks like, that's probably top of the list. I mean, what does it look like when the world is broken in half? That's basically what God did. That's judgment. That's destruction. But it's not this. Because on the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him, and they and every beast after its kind with all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind of all sorts. They went into the ark to they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded, and the Lord closed the door behind them. If you haven't been, and I haven't, but if you want a good, um, I don't say laugh is a good word for it. What what's the interstate, Cameron? Is it is it sixty five? I-65 from Indianapolis to Cincinnati, if you go down that way, because we've taken that trip to go see her parents before, from, I think it's I-65 going south and east, you can actually see the ark that they built at the Ark Encounter from the interstate. If you haven't seen it, go look it up online and then tell me. The world is going to get ripped in half. Is that the boat you want to get in? (laughs) Because my only thought is, no, no. Should that thing have made it? I mean, I'm sure Noah's an awesome craftsman and everything, but if I told you that I'm going to build by hand a boat to withstand the destruction of all humanity, are you getting in the boat? 
And then I bring you this nice big wooden thing covered in pitch and tar. You'd be like, awesome, that looks real safe and secure. Isn't that like the dad equivalent of like putting two ratchet traps over the back of your truck and going, that's not going anyplace. <laughs> it's like, build the boat, close it, that's not going to sink, this is good, yeah, let's... That thing should have had no chance. We're talking volcanoes and earthquakes and landslides and rain, I mean, yeah. And yet what? It did. Why? Because the boat was so well built. Noah got off the thing and be like, that's right. I built that baby. Look at me. Because God holds that. That's why I tell you, I'm not staying in the middle of the road because I'm a good driver. It's because God put me there. I didn't miss the deer because I'm an awesome driver. I didn't see him until he was right there. I missed him because God put him there instead of there. Why? I have no earthly idea. Maybe so that I could be, maybe so I could be here this morning. Maybe he'll hit me with the next one. I have no earthly idea. So you know what I do? I trust, I walk, I serve. And I recognize that the story of Scripture is a story of judgment and redemption. If you're, the, if you're the family of Korah, your existence is judgment and redemption. Judgment because those that turned against Moses, those that warred against God, those that thought they could ascend to the places that God assigns were swallowed up and destroyed. And yet God set aside some of them so that they could praise, so that they could worship, so they could honor God and teach about who he is and what he has done. Noah, the flood, it's a story of judgment, right? Everything dies but it's a story of redemption because that ark makes it. The story of Joseph is a story of judgment as they throw him into the pit and they leave him for dead and then they sell him off and bye, we don't know whatever happened to you. And yet it's a story of redemption as he provides for the family. This is where you live, Christian. You live redeemed in a world under judgment. What do you do about that? You celebrate and you walk. But what about them? What about them? I warn. I proclaim. And if they don't turn, I do what? I keep going. Because that's how I have to live. There's my basis for everything in life. Now, that's a little sobering sometimes, isn't it? Sons of Korah gave you what message? Joy celebration and redemption. Almost like it's a message for Thanksgiving. Why we chose it. Nice segue. You know the worst part? I say we, like somebody else helped me pick out what this text was going to be. It was just me and the other voices in my head. Depends on which one wins on which day it is. Because this is what we should be thankful for in this world. We look at we look at natural disasters. We look at hurricanes and earthquakes and things, and we go, why did that happen? What did God do that for? We don't look at them and go, God just redeemed people, and he just judged sin. Thanks be to God. Why not? You know why we don't say that? Because if you put me on CNN and I said that, what would happen? What would every person on the network for the next three months say after that? Can you believe these people? Thanks be to God. People died. Yes, they did. And that's a tragedy if they were lost in their sin. But if they were God's people, it's a glorious grace as they worship before his throne. And if they're lost in his sin, they were warned. And if they weren't warned, then dagnab. And I'm warning you now. Because sin has consequences. Welcome to why the world looks like what it looks like. We don't talk like that because we're afraid what they'll think. 
Why? Because we're more worried about the world can provide sometimes than what God provides. Being anchored in who he is and what he has done confirms that I care about him. I care what happens to them, but I don't care what they can give me because they can't give me anything more than what God can provide. And that becomes the difference. That's where praise comes from. That's where thanks comes from. That's where Christian living is anchored. If your why is wrong, everything is destroyed. Not some of it. All of it. That's why Joshua, Moses, all of the leaders of Israel had the same refrain when they were leaving. What are you going to do? You got options. Who do you, which side do you fall on? Moses told them, I set before you two options. Choose life. Joshua, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. This is the warning. This is the thing that is consistent in Scripture because the world doesn't stop. It keeps going. Mm, mm, mm. But God has accomplished. If we are faithful to trust, he is faithful to persevere. If we are faithful to believe, he is faithful to carry us home because that is what he has done and what he is always doing because he's with us and he is a stronghold. Therefore, if the mountains fall, we stand firm. If the seas roar, we stand firm. If judgment comes upon sin, we stand firm because God is good and has rescued. Let's pray.